Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, Kyle and I take a look at some of the top Compliance Week stories from October, including the Lafarge enforcement action, the criminal conviction of the former CISO, that's C-I-S-O, at Uber, and the recent agreement by the Department of Justice and Google for a legal compliance monitor position at the firm. Kyle teases some of the findings from the survey of the mind of the CCO, and we have a great chat about sports. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In From the Editor's Desk is a podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which either have or will appear in Compliance Week. Look at top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. I'm your co-host, Tom Fox. And I'm Kyle Brasser, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. Once again, we'll be bringing you some of the top stories that Compliance Week's following. We'll talk about some of our featured stories, and as always, we'll also talk some sports. So in today's episode, we're going to be taking a look back at the top stories on Compliance Week from October, and we'll be looking a little bit more toward November and what we'll have coming down the pipe. Kyle, could we start with some of the top stories or those you wish to highlight, which Compliance Week reported on in the month of November, excuse me, October? Yeah, I think every time we get together for this podcast, I feel like there's always some sort of novel case that we're talking about for the first time. And that tends to be what grabs our audience's attention is when something happens for the first time and sets a precedent. What do I need to know to avoid being the second person that this happens to? And we had three stories this month that got notable attention that sort of fit this bill. One of the stories, and this one's getting a lot of attention, of course, is the DOJ's enforcement action against Lafarge, which was the first corporate material support for terrorism prosecution that the Department of Justice has ever overseen. So that case, a significant fine is always going to catch the eye. But you also just have a case of pretty clear-cut corruption that the building, the building, the, the building products company admitted. Um, second, we had uh, the court ruling against the former chief security officer at Uber. And that one, again, is another case that just caught a lot of attention because it really started to open up some new concerns around the idea of personal liability and data breaches. So I think that's a story that's really going to continue to receive a good amount of attention in the cybersecurity world and from CISO um, who are worried that their actions in response to a data breach could reflect on them personally and actually get them in personal trouble down the line. And then finally, a story that actually just came out before we're recording this podcast is Google and the Department of Justice reaching an agreement where the tech giant's now going to have a legal compliance monitor overseeing overhauls to its legal compliance process. So again, this was a first of its kind action that is it's it's interesting to see the DOJ intervening in this way and placing these restrictions on a company like Google in order to get their compliance house in order in this case. So I have followed all of those stories as the Lafarge case, as you correctly noted, was a case around payments to terrorists and to facilitate terrorism, although that was not the stated goal of Lafarge. The stated the, the real goal was just to make money. Nevertheless, I found this to be a, not only a case of incredible moral bankruptcy at the very top of an organization, but frankly, also a lot of lessons learned for the compliance professional. 
in around the schemes to how the money was transmitted, eventually making its way to ISIS, the C-suite using AOL and Gmail to communicate, and apparently no one was watching. No one, and I guess the final point for me, Kyle, was the amount of money spent in bribes was, I think, a seven-figure amount, a relatively small amount. And the physical plant that was involved in this, the cement plant, as we say in Texas, cement, in Syria was a facility of seven, 600, built at six, cost of $680 million. Certainly not insignificant, but this was a, I think, $25 billion company. We have a fine of nearly $800 million. I'm sure the investigative costs were at a factor of one to two above that. So a really stark example of when it really does go bad and you do have a, a failure in all levels of the organization, the cost to the now subsidiary of Wholesome, Lafarge, is just catastrophic. Yeah, and one of the things that really caught our attention in, in covering this story is, you, like you said, you have all these details and you have the company admitting to their misconduct. But one of the big things is they did not cooperate with the Department of Justice. The DOJ was sure to note that not only did Lafarge not cooperate, but Wholesome did not cooperate beyond admitting what happened. There was a lot of stonewalls that they put in place during the DOJ's investigation. And for me, that's just, I don't understand how those two things can go. I don't understand how you can admit something and also just be like, well, you're on your own and figuring this out. And I think that the settlement amount is reflective of that. Clearly the Department of Justice is really cracking down on these sort of things. They want more businesses to cooperate, more businesses to buy into what they're doing. And they're going to make an example out of the ones that, so it was a little surprising to see that was the case in this, in how this one played out. Not to get too hyper-technical in the weeds, but the U.S. jurisdiction in this case related around about $200,000 that went through the U.S. banking system. And for me, that's a huge lesson for companies who may not think they're subject to U.S. jurisdiction, but if there's any part of a transaction that does whether it's a corruption transaction, whether it's FCPA violation, whether it's antitrust, whether it's something, and the U.S. gets jurisdiction, they're going to assess U.S. fines and penalties, whether or not you cooperate. Mary Jo White was named counsel on the settlement documents for Lafarge, and that may explain why they needed as good a counsel as it gets former SEC commissioner, get them through this. The uh, But I thought lots of lessons for the compliance professional. I think we're going to be studying this for some time. Let's move to the CISO at Uber. And I want to put the question, this question to you, which I really ask as many people as I can. Was this a true sea change, perhaps personal liability for chief information securities officers, or was this just a case of Somebody who lied to the Department of Justice, to the FBI, or to other government agencies and got caught at it. I honestly think it's a little bit of both, Tom, to take the cheap way out, I guess, in a sense. And in this case, you're right. The individual did very, or was found guilty of misleading regulators. And that's where a lot of this liability really lies in. But he was also found guilty of trying to cover up a data breach. And that, but that did not involve necessarily the misleading regulators, but that was a little bit more focused on the bribes that he had paid to these ransomware hackers. And that that is where I think there is going to be an increased sort of liability concern. If I 
am in a similar situation and I'm put to having to pay these hackers, could that reflect poorly on me? Or what are these sort of things that we're going to be looking back on and saying, all right, well, this is the case that it's to. I know that from who we've talked to and from the people that those people have talked to, there's a lot of concern around this case and really what it represents. And yes, again, the former chief security officer at Uber did was found guilty of acting variously, but all the same, I think anytime something like this happens, it, there's just that natural sort of, oh boy, this is, I don't want this to happen to me. I don't want to be the person caught up in, in the fallout of this. And even to, to a bit of a lesser extent, a case that just came through recently with Drizzly, where the FTC has basically proposed an enforcement action against them. It named their chief executive officer for his role in, and this is another case of poor cybersecurity practices, but it named the chief executive officer for his role in enabling those practices. So once again, you're getting these little trinklets or these little trickles of executives being placed in a position of liability for cybersecurity deficiencies. And these continue to come out, then yeah, naturally it's going to get everyone's attention. There's going to start to be real concern about increased liability. And then the last story you mentioned, equally interesting for a variety of reasons, was the Google DOJ deal to have a legal compliance monitor. And I have to say, when I first read the story, my first thought was, that's a job I don't want. But maybe you have a different spin on it. Oh, I don't want it either. I'll, I'll pass on it as well. Yeah, it's... Always, I think, there's a, a, a conflict of, of interest in terms of these big technology companies and the government and what they're trying to accomplish. These tech companies are trying to ensure that their customers feel that they're not going to, for lack of a better way to put it, rat it out to the feds or anything like that just by having an account. But there are obligations that these companies need to meet when a criminal investigation is going on. And so you have Congress stepping in to clarify some of the details of the act that Google was found to essentially have violated. And this is the way it ends up coming together. In this case, Google had essentially lost the data that the DOJ was looking for and the time that the DOJ was litigating and trying to get access to it. And clearly that's going to draw the ire of the agency and they're going to bring the hammer down. But I think in these cases, again, it's anytime you have something that happens for the first time, it draws your eye and you catches it and say, okay, this is something that this agency is really clearly wants to make companies aware of. And uh, could we turn now to stories that uh, you're working on for, uh, I was going to say November, perhaps even through the, uh, through the end of the year? Yeah, I've mentioned this, I think, in previous appearances on the podcast, Tom, but for us, our end of year is always highlighted by our Inside the Mind of the CCO survey. At this point, we've actually have closed the survey, uh, received just north of 250 responses, and now we're diving into the data and being able to use it to inform our winter special report. One data point that I wanted to bring to this discussion, and a lot of this we're gonna get into on our website over the coming months, but one data point, we had asked the survey respondents, are, do you feel that the Department of Justice's new compliance officer certification requirements are positive for compliance? And 41% of respondents said no. And I think that is really interesting compared against the way the DOJ is presenting it. And they have come out to say, we are doing this for you. This is what compliance officers have always wanted. And yet nearly 50%, 41% have said they do not want this. They do not think it is a benefit to the compliance community. And that to me is, it's very eye-opening just how big that disconnect is. And I think it, it says a lot for a lot of the directions the Department of Justice is going in. I think the compliance community doesn't feel like it's being brought along with it. 
I think they feel like they're learning at the same time as everyone else, as opposed to being consulted and being having a say in, in what they think is actually truly best for the compliance officer to accomplish their job. Again, we're going to be cracking into this data a lot more over the coming weeks, but just a lot of highlights that we're looking forward to really getting into. I have to say, when I would interview your predecessor on this podcast and we would get to October, it was clear this survey was one of the favorite exercises compliance week went through for him. And he really enjoyed one, getting the input that you're getting two kind of slices, slicing and dicing. And then three was a, the presentation part. And it's, and then listening to you, I was really interested to see your enthusiasm over the past couple of months when talking about this. And Kyle, I really think this is becoming a, a truly a highlight annually for the compliance community because of the work you do and the insights you're able to bring. And frankly, that people will trust you guys enough to, to give you that feedback and give you that information. So it's going to be really interesting to see where you guys take all of this data and what you can tell us going forward. Any, any, perhaps any case studies or anything like that, that you could tease us with that you're working on? No, not at this time, actually. So our typical case study writer, Allie McDevitt, is on maternity leave right now. So she just welcomed her second child earlier this year. The case studies are on a pause while we're respecting her time. But we have a few other pieces of content in the work, like we always do at the end of the year. And one of the things that we're taking a close look at is some new sort of drama, if you will, around the Securities and Exchange Commission under Gary Gensler. So it's no secret that the agency's been very aggressive in the last year with a lot of its rulemaking proposals. But now we're starting to see blowback come in a lot of different forms. And it's not just political talking points, but Democrats have told the SEC to slow things. We have government watchdogs worried about the amount of workload on SEC employees. And we even have some of these SEC commissioners that are expressing the same concerns. As we look toward next year and even look toward the upcoming midterm elections and what might change in the complexion of the House of Representatives, that's one thing we're really going to be focused on is what's going on at the SEC. They're, they're trying to accomplish so much. Are they going to be allowed to do that or are they burning themselves out doing so? But that's something that we're starting to crack into and we're going to have that coming together prior to the end of the year. Kyle, you've got an upcoming conference in early December, the Third Party Risk Management and Oversight Summit. I was wondering if you might end this section with a few words on that conference, whether will it be a live, a live stream or virtual and what you're what you are looking forward to in this event? Yeah, so this our third party risk conference is in December. It's going to be virtual. So we host two third party risk conferences each year. One that we hosted in person in June in Chicago. And then this next one will be December 7th and December 8th. And it'll just be taking place online. Yeah, I think for myself, having attended the June conference, it's always interesting when we have these smaller conferences that are focused on a single topic because you think to yourself, oh my God, two days of just third-party risk management. Like, how are we still going to have anything to talk about at the end? And yet, it always feels like a lot's left on the table. For us and for myself, I'm excited to pick up where we left off in June. So much has changed in that time. Obviously, everything that's going on with the economy right now, everything that's going on geopolitically right now, it is just rapidly changing. We're going to be diving into all those topics once again. And I'm looking forward to just having even similar conversations 
just reflecting where we are right now and where we're heading in the year ahead. Because obviously, so much exists is coming up in, in 2023. That's causing a lot of concerns. And when you have anything that's causing sort of concerns, it does tend to trickle down to the third parties. So it's good to take stock and understand that, well, if you have a crisis on your business, your suppliers might have similar crises. I'm looking forward to it. I hope any of our listeners haven't had the chance to check it out. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. So please check it out if you're in compliance at all. No matter what level you're at, it's a conference is going to have something. Kyle, with that, let's see if we can solve some of the world's problems through sports. And for those who may not have heard me any time since this weekend, the Astros swept the Yankees and are in the World Series. So I think probably our listeners know what I'm going to say about this. But what I wanted to do is ask you, as a Boston sports fan all your life, what does it mean either for the hated Astros to be in the World Series or the hated Yankees to be swept? Or do you just ignore the whole thing? It's a lose, Tom. That's the best way to put it. And then the other way to put it is go Phillies. For all of us, I think it's the kind of worst case scenario. And I know you love your Astros, but I think for the rest of us, it's hard to root for that club uh, just because the burn is still very recent with their cheating scandal. But I don't think the Yankees are ever going to get any sympathy from uh, Boston fans. One of the things that was completely perplexing was when they were down 0-3 in the series, apparently they were showing video of the Red Sox comeback from down 0-3 in the 2004 ALCS. And uh, I just don't understand how they think that was going to be the, what motivated them was showing video of one of their, probably arguably their biggest collapse in franchise history, essentially. So for the Boston fan base, that was pretty easy to get a kick out of. The way that series played out, I don't think it was really too surprising. I think the Astros are just such a well-built team from top to bottom, and while the Yankees can be top-heavy in a couple of different areas. And I think that's what ended up really showing, is if you don't have Aaron Judge playing his best and some of these other players, the entire thing tends to fall apart. It'll be interesting to see where they go from here. I, I don't expect them to blow things up, but this is this has now been a, quite a long time. In Yankee years, it's been a long time since they've won. So I have to imagine that they're starting to get antsy there. And frankly, in the 21st century, a long time in Red Sox years. Now, four years, yeah. <laughs> yeah, four years, four years. But there's another team in this that you mentioned, the Philadelphia Phillies. And they are the first team that was third in their division to make it to the World Series because of an expanded playoff this year. And they certainly got hot at the absolute right time, knocking off teams that had better records than them. But I wanted to ask you about Bryce Harper, because I heard, I think it was Tony Romo once said, you know, when the game's on the line, you throw the ball to a great player and let him make a great play. And that's exactly what I thought about Bryce Harper when he hit that home run. And I've watched him his entire career. I've always thought he was a special player. And at the biggest moment on the biggest stage up until then he delivered and he delivered in a dramatic way but I wondered if you really had any thoughts on the Phillies their playoff run or they obviously got hot at the right time. yeah one of the things I thought that was really interesting was early in the postseason I saw just scrolling through Twitter a tweet from the ace pitcher of the St. Louis Cardinals Adam Wainwright who's been around for a long time who just happened to throw out there, I've been telling people, look out for this Phillies team. I know you talked about it. They were a third-place team entering the playoffs, and many times that, those teams are just written off, and everyone looks to the sort of the big dogs. 
but they just have that type of roster that is the one that can really catch you off guard in the postseason. And it does absolutely start with Bryce Harper, who's shown time and time again in his career that he's always going to rise to these occasions when all eyes are on him. And I think it it hasn't been the storybook career for Bryce that people were projecting for him when he was coming up with the Nationals and, and was this absolute phenom like the sport had really never seen. He's had his ups and he's had his downs. So I think it has to be very vindicating for him to get this chance now on this big stage and be able to prove why he's worth the money, worth all the hype and everything like that. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he was part of that national team that won the World Series several years ago. I think he had just left the year prior. So for him to now finally get this opportunity, uh, he's soaking it in and he's rising to the occasion. And I think if I'm the Astros, that's the player I am focused on the most heading into the World Series is Harper and how much damage he can do and how much he can ignite that entire club. And really, sports at the end of the day, it's a game of momentum. And if one player can make a big swing with one swing of the bat, then sometimes that's it first. The NBA has started. Here we are in late-ish October, and we're three or four games into the season. Any early season overreactions that you've had so far? I don't know if it's an overreaction, but I have to, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what the heck's going on in Los Angeles with the Lakers. And I think that's got to be the talk of the league so far, because when you're only a weekend, it's such a small sample size. It's really hard to say, oh, this is glaring or anything like that. But oh, and three, but those players and the way it's gone down and with the Lakers, it's hard not to just wonder what the heck is going on over there. So I think right now, a lot of people are reacting and saying this worst team in the league and all the issues that are around their point guard, Russell Westbrook. I think, it, I don't know if it's an overreaction. It's hard to feel like it's an overreaction with just the way it's been happening there. So that's one of the things I'm paying attention to as this season goes on. Again, Boston sports fan, we're not crazy about the Lakers when things aren't going the Lakers way. You're not going to get any sympathy from us. It's it's really alarming how quick things have gone down there from winning the, the finals just two years ago. But for the Celtics and the team I pay attention to the most, I think it's been a sort of pleasant surprise in, in terms of the start. They did have their first really large setback against the Chicago Bulls the other night. But obviously the drama surrounding that club over the last month, and we talked about this in our last podcast, it's good to see the team just putting that behind them and moving on with their new coach and just going out and playing basketball. That's At the end of the day, that's what they're paid to do and that's what they want to do. So it's great to see that sort of be the result. My overreaction was around the Lakers as well and what is going on out there and How can they write that ship? And I guess the other story that intrigued me was uh, the Warriors, Draymond Green, hunting Poole, his teammate. If that had been me, I would have traded him the next day. I would not have tolerated that. But somehow they seem to have figured something out, and at least they're not taking swings at each other on camera anymore. I love the Warriors and what Steph has brought to the game. I'm going to be intrigued to see. And for our last topic, I have to say – it was one of the most stunning Monday night games I've ever seen. Chicago beat Boston or New England. And I still can't believe I just said that. But what even stunned me more was the way Belichick handled the quarterback situation. I view Belichick as the goat of all time of coaches. He doesn't make self-imploded missteps. But I thought he did this time. And now we've got a quarterback controversy in New England that we haven't had, obviously, since Bledsoe and Tom Brady. 
But even back then, when Belichick made the change, he made the change. And he said, this is on me. I'm doing this for the best of the team. And that's it. We're not having a Bledsoe team and a Brady team, whatever it may be. It was clear Belichick was in charge and Brady was his guy. And I'm not sure I feel that now. I really liked Mac Jones early. I like the new guy too. He's a great story. But I still can't believe I said the Bears beat the Patriots. Yeah, and it was, I think it's important that you mentioned Belichick there because at the end of the day, he got outcoached. And you don't see that often. I think that's the more remarkable thing is not only did they lose, but they were completely outcoached up and down the field. It was really hard to watch. <laughs> and I'll admit, for starters, that I'm an in-bed-by-nine type of person, so I only watched the first half. And I'm boy, am I glad I missed the second half because apparently that's where it got a lot worse. But uh, it's one of those things where the quarterback controversy going into the game was the Patriots have these two great quarterbacks, and which one are they going to play? Now the controversy coming out of it is, oh man, the Patriots have no good options. Which one are they going to play? But it, you're right that it, we're not used to seeing Belichick operate on a hair trigger like that. And it was really shocking to see just how short the leash was on Mac Jones and his return. And again, it was his first game back. And in, in baseball, that makes sense. Oh, they on the pitcher only throws 50 pitches in his first game back. And there's an understanding of that going into the game. But in football, if you're playing, then the idea is that you are ready to go for every snap in that game. It had to be he just didn't like what he was seeing or what. And for me as an observer, it, was, yeah, it wasn't the best, but it wasn't bad for someone who hadn't played in four weeks. Just a real shocking thing to, to experience. And I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do. With football, there's very small margin. for You have to write that ship quick. They're going to have to figure it out sooner rather than later. There is no trial phase. There is no, like you said, Bledsoe team, Brady team, or in this case, Zappy team, Jones team. They're just going to have to pick a guy and go with it. And if you're asking me, it's you picked Mac Jones in the first round for a reason, and you have to give him a chance to prove that. It can't just be two series, three series. Up. If you have to take a couple losses, then you're going to know what you have at least. And I guess the other observation, I'm not sure it rose to observation, but feeling I started to have after Sunday and Monday was, are we at a true changing of the guard point in pro football? We had Brady had one of his worst days at Tampa Bay. Mitch means one of his worst days ever. We had Rodgers, uh, the Packers lost again. And he just, it's not that he seems lost, but something's not right up there in Green Bay. And now Belichick. And are we seeing perhaps the end of an era of two players we've been around for a long time and a coach we've been around even longer and is something about to change? Yeah, I don't get that impression just yet because I think if you're looking at a team or some of these teams that are struggling that people are just surprised are struggling, your Packers, your your Rams, the Buccaneers, in most of these cases, and sometimes it hasn't been this case, but in most of the cases, these games are coming down to the wire. And I think that's really just how football unfolds is if the game, the score is tight at the end, one team has to win and one team has to lose. And I think it's just been surprising how many times the team you expect to win has been on the losing side. If we have more games like Monday night where it was just an absolute blowout and it was just a pitiful display from the Patriots, then I think that's when you start to second guess and be like, whoa, what exactly is happening here? And has the league started to shift? But I think as, as long as these games stay close, at least for me as an observer, then sometimes you just got to chalk it up as, well, it's heads or tails here. These, it, it, there's such a, like I said, a small margin for error in the NFL. I'm not alarmed just yet. I've seen a lot of these things happen in, in my time covering these sports, and especially as a Patriots fan and watching them 
rattle off 11 rows and 11 wins in a row, just like that. And all of a sudden you're having a different conversation. We'll see how it goes, but I think it's interesting that it's happening all at the same time. I think this has been a, this has been a weird season. <laughs> I think. I think we both agree on that. Yeah. Kyle, unfortunately we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I'm Tom Fox, your host. I hope you will join us again. All right. Thanks, Tom. Always appreciate it. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of From the Editor's Desk. I hope that you will check out the new podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, The Corruption Files. It's an exploration of some of the top anti-corruption enforcement actions over the past 15 years or so. Together with Mark DiBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard, we take a deep dive into some of the top FCPA and other anti-corruption cases that have uh, percolated since 2008 or so. I know you'll enjoy it. It's a great wrap-up. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.